Section 11 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11 Later Fighting in the Low Countries. Section 1 Oudenarde and Lille. The discontent felt in England against the war and the fact that the bonds which held the alliance together seemed to be growing loose convinced Marlborough that this year, 1708, a blow must be struck. He reports that the burgomaster of Amsterdam, who had hitherto been in favour of the war, had warned him that the Dutch were turning toward the idea of making for themselves a separate peace. Moreover, the inhabitants of Brabant, who had welcomed the success of the Allies after Ramillies, and who might have been still warm in their favour if Marlborough had been permitted to accept the government of the country, which Charles had offered, and still continued to offer, were becoming dissatisfied. The temporary government was chiefly in the hands of Dutch commissioners, who were by no means conciliatory, as Marlborough would have been. The Dutch boasted that at the peace they would keep the country, and as they were Protestants and the inhabitants staunch Catholics, the boast was very unpalatable to the latter. This feeling was known to the French, whom the inaction of the previous year also put in good heart. They determined now to make an effort to win the country back. Bruges and Ghent opened their gates to French troops. There was disaffection among the soldiers at Antwerp, but Marlborough, having received information of it, was able to prevent any outbreak. The next place which the French attempted to secure was Oudenarde, a strong fortress on the Scheldt. It was important to them on account of its position, standing between Brabant and their own frontier. The French army was nominally commanded by a royal prince, the Duke of Burgundy, but, as the fashion was with French armies, a general of greater skill was sent with him, whose duty it was to guide him and make up by his skill for the prince's inexperience this was the duke of vendome but for this arrangement to work well it is absolutely necessary that the prince and his general should be on friendly terms or at any rate have a mutual understanding the feeling between the dukes of burgundy and vendome was strong repugnance if not actual animosity the duke of burgundy was a devout catholic with the manners of royalty but lacking military skill the Duke of Vendome was an infidel, dirty in his habits and lazy, but with genius as a general. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. An army in the direction of which there is discord so apparent cannot succeed. Marlborough's army was not so numerous as that of the French dukes, but he was destined to receive one auxiliary worth a host. As the war in Italy was finished, Eugène was free, and it was arranged that he should join Marlborough at the head of a body of imperialist troops. There were, however, the usual delays in starting, and though Marlborough wrote to hasten him, it was evident that his army could not reach Marlborough in time. Scenting the battle from afar, Eugène left first his infantry behind, then his cavalry, and arrived in Marlborough's camp attended only by his personal suite. "'My men will be encouraged,' said Marlborough, by the presence of so distinguished a commander. The two generals were agreed as to their plans. It was determined to march between France and the French army, so that in case of defeat the French could not retreat to their own territory. 
on the approach of the allies the siege of udenarde was raised the french marching northwards the french their faces turned toward paris occupied a strong position defended by some rising ground the allies moved to the attack at three in the afternoon of july eleventh seventeen o eight greatly to the surprise of the french generals for the allied army had just marched fifteen miles before marlborough had even got his army into position he ordered his cavalry to charge so that if the enemy had any thought of retiring without a battle it was too late in this first charge the electoral prince of hanover afterwards george the second distinguished himself the right of the allied army was assigned to eugene out of compliment to whom marlborough made this wing very strong and placed the english troops in it he himself commanded the centre in which no english were fighting but various corps of the other nations of the grand alliance at the first assault the allied left was broken not long after it had crossed the scheldt the enemy thinking that they were winning pressed forward to drive the allies back into the river an obstinate fight ensued hand to hand bayonet to bayonet indeed a great deal of the battle was of this nature it was remarked that artillery was hardly employed at all the fighting being at too close range as the french right thus pressed forward marlborough saw an opportunity of cutting it off and he sent a very strong force under the old dutch general marshal overkirk who had fought in william's battles and in many another he was now in his last field for he died this year the service was well carried out and the heights behind the french right were occupied as night came on overkirk's men on the allied left and eugene's men who had been working steadily forward on the right almost met they had even fired some shots into each other's ranks before the mistake was discovered by the officers the order was given to cease firing and through the gap that was still open many of the french escaped but many more were taken prisoners the number of slain in the battle was not very great the chevalier saint georges fought on the side of the french the duke of vendome it is said wished to fight again the next day but the duke of burgundy and his friends positively refused we must then retreat said vendome angrily and i know he added looking at burgundy that you have long wished to do so a few days after the fight eugene's army came up but as the duke of berwick who had been watching it and marching parallel with it now joined the main body of the french no real difference was made in the proportion of the armies after a victory the important question is what use shall be made of it eugene wished to attack the strong fortress of lille on the french frontier marlborough proposed to disregard it and march upon paris in this project he would have received the support of the home government but eugene considered it dangerous to leave such strong enemies in the rear and the dutch deputies were aghast at the proposal the siege of lille was looked upon with great interest in all other quarters the war flagged whilst men's attention was turned upon this important contest the fortification of lille was considered a masterpiece of vauban boufflet one of the ablest of french marshals was defending it it was known that king louis was determined to strain every effort rather than let lille be lost on the other hand 
the allied generals were equally determined to take the town the convoy which brought up the siege train the heavy artillery and the supplies was said to have been thirteen miles in length eugene commanded the besieging marlborough the covering army opposed to berwick and vendome the regulations which the allied generals jointly drew up for those who were to serve in the trenches are still considered a valuable lesson for the young soldier prodigies of valour were performed by the defenders when powder failed a body of french soldiers marched through the enemy's lines each carrying forty pounds of gunpowder through the leader speaking dutch many succeeded in passing the sentinels but a casual remark in french from an officer betrayed the rear at another time a french captain took news into the city swimming through the allied lines down the river deal on which lille is with his letter in his mouth and escaping the notice of the sentries by swimming under water he returned to the french camp in the same way the chief trouble of the besiegers was to obtain supplies on one important convoy bringing provisions from ostend it seemed as if the whole siege would turn to eugene's camp the french therefore sent an army to attack it marlborough detached general webb for its defence the french came upon webb in the wood of weinendale but were beaten back and the provisions reached eugene safely this affair was considered of importance because webb as a tory was opposed to marlborough in politics and either on that account or by mistake marlborough assigned the glory of the skirmish to another general in the time of marlborough's unpopularity afterwards the tory house of commons passed a vote of thanks to general webb for the victory at Weinendale. as a last resource to prevent supplies reaching eugene the french opened the sluices and laid the country under water whereupon the allies built large flat-bottomed boats and brought the supplies by water after sixty days of gallant defence marshal boufflet was obliged to capitulate it was even said that king louis wrote that he should not push matters to extremity but spare the lives of those who had fought so well eugene in admiration of the brave defence allowed boufflet to name his own terms of capitulation lille was not surrendered until all its powder had been fired away and the garrison had been for some time living on horse flesh section two negotiations the winter after udenarde and the taking of lille was a terrible time for france when the spring arrived the country was in a condition of absolute exhaustion the efforts which had been required after such defeats as blenheim ramillies and turin and by the variety of points on which the country was open to the attack of the allies had emptied the treasury and increased to an enormous extent the public debt had robbed the fields of their cultivators and caused them to be left untilled bankruptcy and famine stared france in the face there was no money to pay the soldiers the taxes were unfruitful no one seemed to have money to lend the only quarter whence corn could be imported was the levant but english cruisers swarmed in the mediterranean and intercepted the corn ships there was nothing for the people to eat but black bread even the fine ladies at versailles lived on oat cakes the winter was one of especial severity 
it was terribly cold in england where the thames was frozen over for weeks but its effects were more terrible in france for there they were starvation louis the fourteenth who claimed to be the father of his people was touched with their distress and humbled himself to apply for peace he sent an ambassador to holland with proposals very advantageous to the allies he proposed that his grandson should surrender all the spanish dominions except naples and sicily which were to be made into a separate kingdom for him marlborough was appointed english plenipotentiary together with lord townsend an honest but not very able man who on the accession of george i became the whig prime minister the english insisted on the cession of the whole spanish monarchy on the acknowledgment of the queen and the protestant succession on the banishment of the pretender and the demolition of the works at dunkirk to these the various allies added other claims each for their own advantage at the expense of france the most important was the dutch claim for a barrier or chain of strong fortresses to secure them from attack as to the particular fortresses named marlborough thought the dutch were asking too much when the terms were made known in versailles the scene at the cabinet is described as most melancholy the princes of the blood royal even shed tears on the condition of france but it was determined to proceed with the negotiations Monsieur de torcy himself the minister for foreign affairs was sent to the hague to see whether he could procure easier terms he has described several interviews which he had with marlborough to whom he was empowered to offer a large bribe but the french minister himself tells us that marlborough would not listen to the disgraceful offer the allies adhered to their proposals adding to rather than abating from them the conditions with which torcy returned to versailles were harder than before that the whole spanish monarchy should be ceded to the archduke charles and that the dutch should have all the frontier towns for which they asked it was known that philip would not quietly surrender his hold of spain where he had won the love of the castilians god had placed him on the spanish throne he said and he would maintain himself there with the last drop of his blood a clause was therefore added saying that unless spain and sicily were surrendered within two months king louis was to join the allies in driving his own grandson from his throne however crushed france was these terms were intolerable however much king and people might long for peace it was not to be bought thus madame de maintenon indeed wanted louis to accept this condition but another cabinet meeting was held at which bolder counsels were heard if i must continue the war said louis with a spirit that brings back his earlier days i will contend against my enemies rather than against my own family he made an appeal to his people to meet the emergency sending a circular to all the governors of provinces intending that its contents should be made public he spoke of his own desire for peace and his efforts to secure it he was prepared he said to make humiliating sacrifices but the more he showed himself disposed towards them the more did the allies rise in their demands they seemed determined to open to themselves avenues by which they might penetrate into the heart of france even if he had consented to all their conditions it would not have procured peace seeing he continued 
that our enemies in their pretense to negotiate are palpably insincere we have only to consider how to defend ourselves and show them that france united can resist the united powers of europe in their attempts by fair means or by foul to ruin her all the ordinary sources of revenue are exhausted i come before you for your counsel and assistance at a time when our very safety as a nation is at stake let us show our enemies that we are still not sunk so low but that we can force upon them such a peace as shall consist with our honour and with the good of europe marlborough and the allies did not expect an answer such as this appeal produced or such a result to their intolerable and humiliating demands the french were touched by these words from one whom they had regarded as almost superhuman poorly clad and half-starved recruits flocked to the standards but there was a new spirit in their eyes a war which had been the french king's war became the french people's and a larger army was set on foot than ever during the war before section three malplaquet marlborough who knew the effort that france was making and the importance which on that account attached to the approaching campaign pressed upon the english government the necessity of strengthening his army he used his best endeavours also to obtain more troops from the other nations of the confederacy he knew well the military maxim that in a desperate struggle victory will fall to that side which can bring up reserves when its enemy no longer can marlborough succeeded in persuading the home government to send some extra troops and not to recall certain regiments from antwerp the dutch also sent four thousand german troops who were in their pay but the number of men under arms was already very large larger than ever before and reaching more nearly to the size of modern armies those with the french standards were about as numerous as those in the allied army there were about a hundred and ten thousand men in each but the french were badly supplied the distress in france showed itself in the army and the scarcity of bread if a detachment had to march it was said it could only have a full breakfast by diminishing the breakfast of the troops that were to halt the command of the french army was now given to villars the only french marshal who had not as yet been defeated in the war the soldiers believed in his luck which it was hoped would not now desert him boufflet who had won himself glory by his brave defence of lille offered although senior to villars to serve under him and this noble example part as it were of the wave of enthusiasm which was sweeping over france did much to kindle the ardour of the soldiers who mostly consisting of raw levies were opposed to the veterans under marlborough and eugene villars was the able general who had shown clemency to the camisards he was much addicted to boasting on assuming command the first thing that he did was to announce that his army was much larger than it really was and second was to give a ball the plan of campaign which the allied generals set before them was a continuance of that which had made the siege of lille a necessity it was to force their way into france leaving no stronghold behind the only formidable fortresses which stood between them were tournay mons and valenciennes they would also have to fight the army of villars whose business was likewise twofold 
to prevent the capture of these towns and to prevent the army of the allies from penetrating across the frontier with this latter object he began to make strong works behind the rivers scarp scheldt and truil marlborough made an advance as if to attack the army of villars who thereupon hastily withdrew troops from tournay to strengthen his forces then by a night march the allied troops quickly invested tournay thus weakened the place was as bravely defended as it was strongly fortified and the citadel was especially strong vauban's skill had been employed on all these towns along the french frontier and tournay was considered his masterpiece the town was taken in a month the remains of the garrison then retired into the citadel which resisted for five more weeks the terrors of the siege were increased by the fact that in none of the other sieges were mines so much employed by the besieged just when a breach was made in the walls and the allies were advancing toward it a mine would be sprung and three hundred soldiers blown into the air or when a party of the besiegers had discovered a mine and were congratulating themselves on the discovery they were blown up by the explosion of another mine beneath it on september third however the garrison surrendered and marlborough in consideration of their bravery let the defenders march out with the honours of war the next object of attack was mons but to invest this it was necessary to break through some part of the french lines and to cross the river Aisne. on the night of the surrender an advance guard was sent to seize saint ghislain if possible but it was too strong for them a second and stronger force under the prince of hesse pushed further on and crossed the river above the town of mons and then finding a gap between the town and the lines of the french behind the Truille, which joins the end just below mons the prince advanced and invested mons on the southern side this movement which succeeded almost without opposition was of great service it made an opening through the french lines and placed the allies between mons and france if villars wished to stop the siege of the town his only chance was by risking a battle he advanced therefore toward mons from the south and took up a strong position at malplaquet the allied generals were however as ready as he was for a battle they had followed close upon the heels of hesse and on september ninth held a council of war the dutch deputies were of course opposed to fighting marlborough was for an immediate attack before the enemy could entrench himself but eugene who also wished to fight was yet willing to delay until more battalions which were expected from before tournay should come up this as a middle course was adopted but there can be no doubt that marlborough was right the stubborn resistance that the french made two days later was greatly assisted by the entrenchments which they had thrown up and the right policy would have been to attack at once or not at all the ground round malplaquet was very thickly wooded it was originally part of a large forest which in many places had yielded to cultivation to the north the direction in which mons lay there were two woods laniere and teniere and between them a glade or open space which was called the trouet of aulnois at the southern end of this glade villars entrenched himself he had used the two days well when the english troops advanced they murmured so we have still to fight against the moles 
Villars had also occupied the woods. The battle that followed, September 11, 1709, was terribly bloody. It was won not by strategy, but by downright hard fighting. Each wing of the Allies was once repulsed. The right had to fight its way through the wood of Tignères. The left was under the command of the Prince of Orange, and when after most terrible slaughter it was driven back, Marlborough told the Prince that this attack was only intended to be a feint. It is uncertain whether this was intended as a consolation to the Prince for his repulse, or was really a part of Marlborough's plan. Prince Eugène was wounded in the battle, being shot behind the ear, but when his officers begged him to retire and have the wound dressed, he said there would be time enough for that in the evening if he survived. On the other side, Villars was wounded more seriously, but he also showed the same spirit. He ordered a chair to be brought that he might continue to direct the battle, but he fainted in it and was removed from the scene. Boufflet, on whom the command devolved, found that after four hours' hard fighting his centre was broken and the entrenchments carried. The French, however, were able to retreat in good order from the field. The loss of the Allies in thus dislodging the French amounted to about 20,000 men, or nearly one-fifth of the force that they brought into the field. The French, who fought behind entrenchments, lost a little more than half that number. These two facts, the excellent retreat and the loss of the Allies, made Malplaquet a very different defeat for the French from Blenheim, Ramillies, or Oudenarde. Louis' circular had borne good fruit, and there was truth in Villars' boast. If God vouchsafed that we should lose such another battle, your majesty could count your enemies destroyed. Some such feeling may have influenced also the mind of Marlborough, as well as the loss of his old friends and comrades. He is said to have been unusually distressed after this battle. He became seriously ill, and a report, afterwards expressed in a triumphant song, was spread amongst the French that he was dead. But the victory remained with the Allies. The siege of Mons was not raised. That fortress surrendered on October 26th, and the Allies went into winter quarters. Marlborough recovered from his fever, but had he died then, he had perhaps been happier in the opportunity of his death. His last great field was fought, his last great victory won. End of section 11